I'm having a good time. You are? Yeah. I can tell. And we are rolling Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is Dr. Changar Kuru Kularatne. However, he insists that those that he meets simply refer to him as Changa. He is a medical doctor with over 20 years experience specializing in internal medicine and infectious diseases. Born in Colombo, Sri Lanka and a graduate of St. George's University in Grenada, West Indies, Changa did his residence affiliated with Yale University Hospital at Danbury Hospital, Connecticut, USA. He describes himself as a healer, teacher and student all at the same time. He's a frequent collaborator with regional and international arms of the World Health Organization. He's held leadership positions at medical organizations worldwide from the US to Singapore, New Zealand and beyond. Equal parts influenced by training and by fatherhood, he has four children of his own, Changa has a keen interest in preventative medicine, holistic wellness, lifestyle and nutrition based therapy cell signaling technology and the use of biomarkers in human disease. Now I really hope that he explains some of those details. Whilst his credentials and knowledge are unsurpassable, his true gift as a medical professional is his ability to relate and empathize with his patients. Changa looks at the bigger picture and strives to empower individuals to take ownership of their health. Changa is nothing short of captivating in his passion and hopes to create seismic change in the health systems landscape globally by finding a solution to the broken healthcare systems worldwide. Dr. Changa, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me here, and it's um, it's it's really good to be here. Thank you. How are you this morning? I feel well. I feel well. We got got off to a, a good morning without too many hiccups, and got the kids off to school, and and here we are. Yeah. How do you find that morning routine with four children? It's it is uh, it is challenging. At the same time, it is every morning is an opportunity for me to do something better than I did. So it's it's um, I use it as a moment for personal growth, and I and I and I'm not successful most of the time, but but it's something that I always always go back to and and see could I have done this better? Could I have? approached a certain situation differently because when all four kids are, are, are full on at the same time and we're trying to do breakfast, make their snacks and, and get them all, all out the door, it's uh, it's beautiful and chaotic and challenging and amazing all at the same time. In your life and career, I mean, would you find being a parent up there as one of the most challenging things you've done in your life so far? It is. In what, in what aspects, mainly? Simply because you are flying off the, the seat of your pants, really. Because if you, if you compare that with uh, a medical specialist training, for example, there's a curriculum, there's uh, guidelines, and there's standardized assessments along the way. Uh, there's mentorship. Uh, there's all kinds of support that you could use to get to where you want to get to. Now, as parents... We, we don't have a curriculum or a guidebook or, 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 or assessments. It's, it's, we just do the best we can. Um, and only time will tell whether a certain approach is, is um, quote-unquote right or quote-unquote not so right. So I think that 
that unknown, that uncertainty, is uh, is unnerving at times. Is unnerving at times, and 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 you know we we really try to do the best we can in the moment, and then try to learn and grow as we go on. So, so what do you do as uh, self care? I uh, should be should be doing a lot more, um, but my time is when the kids are off to school. Then then I'm able to focus on on the things that I need to get through, uh, get done in the day. And uh, so I have a chunk of time to myself in, in the morning and early afternoon. Like, do you adhere to any like exercise or meditation practices as a, as a way to, to manage? What I do is um, intermittent fasting. So I do um, um, a 16-hour fast uh, on most days of the week. Sometimes it's seven days a week. Can and you go into more detail with that? Because... I do the same. I'm actually doing it right now. So, can you tell me how you initiate that? Yes, it. I mean, intermittent fasting. It goes back three thousand years. Um, you know, the Buddha recommended it for his disciples, and he did it himself. Where um, I may be wrong here, but in, at some point, twelve noon or one p.m. in the afternoon would be their last meal for the day, and they wouldn't consume another meal until breakfast time the following morning and those practices are still with uh, upheld um, uh, today in, in most uh, Buddhist temples dinner is completely you know foregone so the health benefits of this um, has been recognized for, for thousands of years so it, it, it gives I think it gives our digestive systems some much needed rest and it also Utilizes some of our stored sugars and stored energy uh, in a way that's uh, that's really beneficial for health. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm very happy doing it. So is it in line with um, cell signaling technology? I'm really I, I read that term and I'm like I really can't wait to hear an explanation of what cell signaling signaling technology is. The, can you describe it? Yes the the most vivid way I can describe what a cell does. Is if one thinks about a cell as a village or a community. So in a village or a community, you'll have the houses or the huts, as we see here. You'll have a central place where the meetings take place. And you may have other infrastructural components. There may be a post office or, or a letterbox. There may be some form of security. Um, there has to be a form of um, waste disposal and recycling. So just like a village or a community will have these components, each of our individual cells have to do this. They have to take out the garbage every day. They have to um, replenish and rejuvenate and make sure that all the functions of a cell are carried out without a hiccup. So to do this... Just like we need this in real life, you need communication. So without good communication, all of these essential activities will not happen properly. So how do cells communicate with one another? How do cells communicate with other tissue parts of you know that are remote in the body? So how do the heart cells communicate with one another and with the brain cells? It's through various forms of signaling. So if this signaling doesn't happen properly, 
then it's all chaos. And that's the beginning of disease is when this process breaks down. And it can break down because of a lack of a certain nutrient. It can break down because of um, the introduction of a toxin. And it can break down because of uh, a suboptimal emotional state that the being is under. So when such I look at... Such as stress? Such as stress. And... Um, sure. I'm so sorry. And we're back. Uh, Dr. Changa, as he does, had to take a phone call for uh, somewhat of a medical emergency. However, he's able to stay with us and... Uh, Kind of an indication of your day-to-day life, is it, Changa? It is, it is. And um, and this gets to an important part of the health system's issues that, that I'm keenly interested in. Because for most people, health issues or health concerns come up all the time. And the way the system is structured now you one doesn't have much of a choice except make an appointment with the doctor and go see the doctor and 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 that's where the, the dysfunction begins if, if we can take a few steps back in our grandmother's time most common uncomplicated health issues were sorted right at home with things that grew in the garden or with ingredients that you could find in the kitchen and it was done with such confidence. Grandma always knew, oh, this is the ailment. Here, we are going to do this. And within the time space of one or two generations, we've lost that. We've lost that as a people. And we've lost that as communities. And a lot of things coincide with that. I mean, sociologically... um, we could look at the nuclear families that are um, typical now, uh, not only in the economically developed, uh, quote-unquote, West, but in in many countries, even in the Asian region, where you have two parents and a child or children, and typically both parents would work. The children spend a lot of time in school or in in, uh, uh, extracurricular activities, and then one day blends into the next, as we know, where the the true benefit of having a sage, having that wisdom, having that experience that grandparents do, integrated into your daily life, is uh, is a, is a hard thing to find. Do you find there's a higher level of anxiety in families when it comes to medical issues than there was, say, when you were a child? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. Um, And that anxiety comes from a fear of being unsure. So that confidence that our grandmothers... um, My mother still has that, but she lives in Sri Lanka and and it's it's, uh, still very much uh, um, health-aware community in that sense. But when you lose that confidence and when when we don't know what to do next, um, I would... I would be in an anxious state if I were presented with um, a broken TV set and say someone says, here, fix this. I wouldn't know where to start. So that fear of the unknown brings about a state of anxiety. And part of what I'm trying to create 
is a landscape where we can instill that confidence and that knowledge back into families, back into communities. And, and uh, there's a particular focus on uh, parents who are at home. It may be mom, it may be dad. But to enable and to empower families to address and take care of the uncomplicated health issues within the confines of the home. Uh, that's not to say not to go to the doctor. I mean, there has to be a balance in what we do. But uh, we have seen, I have seen in my medical practice, so many people sitting across from me in the emergency room or in the clinic or in the urgent care facility that need not be there. So what you're implying is that you'd like to develop more first response skills in parents as a, as a first layer in regards to responding to medical conditions Absolutely. as opposed to just running to the GP immediately? Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if a child gets a fever, it is not an emergency unless it's associated with certain red flags, which is all part and parcel of education. If it's an uncomplicated fever, uh, one should just focus on on hydration, on uh, assessing how the fever is going to progress. But it is not an emergency where you should take that child to the doctor as soon as possible. Now, if it's a fever that's associated with certain red flags, like um, the child is not arousable, is is lethargic, uh, is extremely cranky. Convulsions? Convulsions, absolutely. And um, is not making urine. So there are certain, there's a list of red flags where if you see fever and these, you know, a stiff neck, vomiting, uh, the list goes on. So if parents are armed with the knowledge that this is a fever, but doesn't have these bad things with the fever then it's perfectly uh, appropriate to monitor and manage that child at home. And this alone, in certain health settings, would unclutter the health system tremendously. I've seen you operate amongst uh, the community, and I've noticed very much that you will give a lot of time to parents or individuals do you feel that is the best method for spreading knowledge and education or do you have any other approaches in line with what you were just saying as opposed uh, in, in regards to education and educating people do you think that is the best method those one-on-one conversations or do you have anything else bigger picture in place to achieve that no that, that's a great question Shannon um I do believe in spending a lot of time with people I work with. And that time correlates with how deeply and completely they understand the health issues. And my hope is that then that would be spread within small communities. If, uh, If the opportunity is there, then that educated and aware person could pass on these to others. But that is not... A terribly efficient way of, of uh, spreading messages and to that end we are in the process of creating a health academy which is web based um, 
and I'm partnering with some amazing people where we hope to provide a web-based access to certain modules, workshops, um, even podcasts uh, to, to get the message across. I would love to take the top 10 conditions that affect each community, which is geographically uh, different. Very. Yeah. So it's what we what we encounter here in Indonesia is not the same as one would encounter even next door in Singapore, let alone the UK or the US. And if we take the top five or top ten conditions that are uncomplicated and we really, really teach and empower parents, teachers and communities to manage these conditions really well and emphasize prevention so that these conditions can be avoided in the first place, just those two things will have a tremendous impact on not only the overall health within a family or a community, but also how, when and why people access the healthcare system where they live in. And if we walk into an emergency room right now in the United States and we take account of which of those people truly have a medical emergency that warrants a visit to a to an emergency facility versus someone who's there just because they could not get an appointment with their primary doctor or someone who's there because they believe that what they're having is a true medical emergency. So education and empowerment can address across the board most of those uh, issues and and the health systems would be would be uncluttered and a lot of the time we see the the general practitioner as the first step in the health system they we, we refer to the general practitioner as the gatekeeper well that's that's wonderful but i want to go back way back further to when the illness starts at home so the gatekeeper should be even even more proximal to that point, even more behind that point, it should be prevention. So if prevention and being healthy were successful, we can't avoid everything, but perhaps that particular health event could be avoided. Do you feel the current system is very much taking a curative approach? The World Health Organization outlines five dimensions of health. So physical... Uh, I think spiritual, emotional, social, and the last one is cognitive. Um, what you're actually discussing at the moment, are these conversations you've had with the World Health Organization? Is this, is this where the ideas have evolved from, or was it more from your personal values? It's, it's more from a, from a personal standpoint, where I have been fortunate to have had such a good medical training experience first in Connecticut uh, at Danbury Hospital which is part of the Yale University's umbrella and, and subsequently in, in New Orleans for my infectious diseases at the Auctioner Clinic Foundation and I had tremendous mentors I had wonderful wonderful amazing physicians who taught me and trained me and guided me and then I went on to basically to to check off all the boxes that I had in my medical school admission personal statement and I said well this is what I intend to do as a as a medical practitioner and I had achieved 
all of that and I'm very very fortunate to have done that in a relatively short period of time but what I realized was that despite my best efforts and our best efforts as healthcare providers and health health teams and health institutions there was not much health that we could see in the people that we treated in the people that we knew when you say not much health i mean are you talking short term health or are you saying long term health you were seeing would you say you were seeing the same patients over and over or in some cases yes but but generally if i were to to ask someone who had access to quote unquote the best health systems in the world and if i were to ask them do you feel healthy are you healthy are you happy with your level of health eight times out of 10 the answer would be no so there's a mismatch in what we have been providing and the amount of health that the people have experienced mm. so you think some people are in line with well if there's an absence of disease i'm healthy however we need to stop again yes Enough, i'm so medical sorry medical emergency it's fine and this is all part of it so let's let's have so what i was saying <clears throat> before we uh we had to stop is that i think there's a common misconception that if someone has an absence of disease they think they're okay but do you feel that if there's an absence of disease they're okay at the moment but they may be like a time bomb ready to go off is is that what you're sort of getting at or you've just described me because <laughs> i i know i have <laughs> to but i i don't have a disease that would fit in a regular western diagnosis i don't have diabetes i don't have cholesterol problems i don't have heart disease mm. but i know as certain as the sun will rise tomorrow in the east that i'm not um healthy in a sense of where i would want to be um my energy believe it or not is not where i would like it to be um four children will do that that that'll do that too <laughs> um and probably a little bit of inflammation that manifests with maybe a red eye for a day here and there maybe a little also in my mouth uh, another day or a little dot on my skin where i kind of look at it and say hmm what's that so and this is getting back to the health of individual cells and so what i'm working towards personally is to provide all my cells with the nutrients that they need so that they can speak with one another communicate well and for true health to begin deep inside at the cellular level which is a big part of the reason why i um i'm doing the intermittent fasting and working on keeping things in perspective minding my emotional health which is why at the beginning of our encounter i said that the mornings are actually an opportunity for growth where if because they're challenging because they're challenging and that's where the growth happens that's where the growth happens growth doesn't happen in your comfort zones growth happens in the fringes where we are just on the edge of our comfort zones and entering the unknown or entering the challenging so if we sit right 
center field of our comfort zone, there's no growth. There's comfort. <laughs> and so this morning, Vivian, I have one daughter, Vivian, she, she woke up on the proverbial wrong side of the bed and everything was, you know, she had this angry scowl on her face. And How old is she? She's six. Oh. And... But the boys, the three boys, were generally okay, and then I and I tried to work with Vivian and said, "Look, honey, it's a great morning. You know, let's let's go." And so she posed some challenges, and so then I look at how do I respond to those those situations. So after she went to school, I probably thought I should have been a bit more empathetic if I had stopped doing the dozen things I was doing and just picked her up, um, twirled around with her, rubbed noses with her, which probably would have taken 10 seconds. I think we would have had uh, a much better morning than me just saying with words, look, Vivian, we need to get to school on time. We need to do this. We need to do that. To a child, those are words, and, and I think it can, it can seem insensitive even though I was speaking in a calm, loving voice, to the child it's still words. But had I recognized that, stopped what I was doing, a minute is not going to make a difference in the long run, did all of those things with her and asked, hey, I can play a song on my phone, what song would you like to listen to? I think the morning would have taken a completely different course. So, so that was an opportunity for me to reflect and grow so that tomorrow it might not be Vivian, it may be Dylan, my four-year-old. So now I'm mindful to take a different approach than saying we have to do this as a family, our priority is to be on time, we have to be on time, and let's just get everything together. Uh, so that would be a difference that I would want to, to not to implement, but also to be. Mm. And do you... When you start the morning that way, emotionally, you personally feel better. Do you think there's a, a physiological link then? I personally so, do. Is that a step in stress management? Absolutely, Shannon. The, and this, this uh, viewpoint or this philosophy of mind-body is not emphasized enough, in my opinion, in, in the regular Western medicine protocols or curricula that, that we see nowadays. If you open a medical textbook, you will see chapters. You will see the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the gastrointestinal system, the nervous system. And even though those trends are changing now, traditionally this is how the human body has been taught in terms of systems or chapters when in reality, how the human body functions, this couldn't be any further from the truth. We now know that the gastrointestinal system is a huge component of our immune system. And we have come to recognize certain connections between our intestinal system and how our brain functions. So everything is interconnected. And and the importance of of 
spiritual or mental or psychological well-being and how it how it affects the health of uh, of the person is tremendously important. So you you're from Sri Lanka? Yes. You were born in Colombo? Yes. Can you tell me like what was it like for you growing up in Sri Lanka? Like is that where you grew up and most of your young years or did you move around? No, uh, for the first 19, almost 20 years of my life, it was in Sri Lanka. And of course, I had traveled here and there, but uh, but it was lovely in that... Why? Um, I think the singular thing that made it as enjoyable as it was was the sense of community. Um, the neighbors knew one another. We were in and out of each other's homes. And even in the school community... Um, and I, and I pointed this out to my children when, when we were just uh, recently there. Uh, my friends, my, my closest friends in Sri Lanka, we have been closest friends since we were five years old or six years old. And my youngest two are four years and six years. And, and I told them, imagine one of your friends now in school being this close and this, uh, you know, almost like, family to you in 30 years in 40 years that's what I have and I, I a, a huge component of my well-being aside from family are those close friends that I've been fortunate to to grow up with so you've got your family support network but you've extended that with long-term friends absolutely and it provides you with a strong sense of comfort yeah it does it does and more and more people are looking at the things that are important to keep us healthy and we are going away from the more obvious lifestyle issues not to say that they're not important such as exercise is important community so getting to things like community and how you see yourself fitting into a community that, don't quote me because this is not scientific in that sense, but I think that may be the number one factor that influences individual health. Wow. And this is just my personal opinion. This is, it's very difficult to back this up scientifically, but based on the observations and experiences that I've, I've seen and witnessed and been a part of, the sense of community, if you feel that you've, have a sense of well-being within a community along with certain traditions like what the community may do for New Year's or what the community may do at a religious ceremony uh, what the community may do in, in other aspects is a tremendous boost to individual cells down to the cellular level so, I mean, growing up in Sri Lanka, which um, may be considered a, a developing country, yes, and then living and working in developed yes. and often overdeveloped countries, such yes. as, I mean, I think Australia is overdeveloped and USA could be considered overdeveloped. Can you draw some comparisons? I know that Sri Lanka is a fairly spiritual place. They have a, a strong belief system there. Do you adhere to a spiritual belief system? In Sri Lanka, I, I grew up in a Buddhist family, uh, as probably 70% of, of Sri Lankan households are. And that was 
a grounding factor when I was growing up. And throughout life, I have come to see that for each of us, there may be something slightly different to take away. And, and I'm probably going through one of those stages now where I feel that there is something bigger out there and I haven't quite put my... And this has occurred later on in life. Yes. Yes, very much so. And, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be at odds with, with your belief systems, but I think it's a belief system that is expanding. Uh, I don't feel as if I'm in conflict but I feel like my belief systems are uh, expanding and going beyond. And what that has offered me is another thing that is important for individual health, perhaps down to the cellular level, is living with a feeling of gratitude. <laughs> is going through the day being grateful. And I've tried to pass this on to my children um, through everyday lessons when when my boys get upset over something um, this morning they were fighting over I f even forget what they were fighting over but I said look look at look around you it's beautiful you have an amazing school to go to even though you are at each other's roads your family and and just be happy and be thankful it seems very obvious to me that you're someone that uh, asks himself regularly, how can I be of service to the community as opposed to what can the community do for me? Was that something instilled in you as a child? Because I've seen the way you operate and you have found a niche in a community that requires assistance and you've then tapped into your own skill set and then you want to make that freely available to an extent. Yes. Um, is, is that where your is that your philosophy or well I, I think that with an ability to do something comes a great responsibility to do it to the best of your uh, to the best of your skills to the best of your ability to the best of your powers and not doing that would be would be rather irresponsible and selfish um, I am not alone in this community um, you are a teacher, Shannon, mm -hmm. and you take over, essentially, my child when he or she walks in through the portals of the school. And without your service and your contribution, my life would not be complete and there would be a gaping hole that I'm unable to provide. So I simply see myself as one tiny piece of the puzzle but I'm keen to do that to be the best tiny piece of puzzle that I could possibly <laughs> be and I want my children to see that well, daddy may not have all the answers but daddy tries and I, I want to be the best I can be um, otherwise it's completely unfair for me to expect other facets of my life to to progress and flourish. Well, let's go back to when you were a child, maybe the same age as your current children. Was there a particular teacher that really stood out for you 
it had an impact on you? Were there you were or numerous over the years. Yes, there were there were numerous teachers. There was um, a zoology teacher that um, that I came to know, mm-hmm. and what I enjoyed most was um, what we talked about and what we learned about was a lot more than zoology. It was about life in general and and, uh, and sometimes we would spend half an hour speaking of things not even remotely connected to zoology and, and, and just to have that um, that encounters, those experiences were really helpful. Then there was my general science teacher was the same challenged me to think on my feet and forget the textbook and say does this make sense to you how do you think this would happen and uh, so there were teachers can be uh, tremendously inspiring and influential at what stage in your life did you decide you wanted to become a doctor well my mother would say that would be at age three (laughs) because um, there was a doctor in the community that that my family would go see and um to get into his clinical examination room was um, a, a set of swinging doors and there was a gap underneath those swinging doors which was perfect for my height so I could walk into his exam room regardless of who was there without ducking my head so so my mother tells me that while she was managing my my other siblings that I would just walk into Dr. Shirley's office and, and but everyone in the clinic knew me. It was you just felt like you were home. Yes, and uh, and then I think watching Dr. Shirley deal with his patients and 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 how he did how he did his job day to day, I would then come and come back home and pretend to be Dr. Shirley, and and I would you know dish out pebbles to people or whatever I did as a three year old, and then. Later on in my mid-teenage years, I veered towards mathematics. Probably there was an element of laziness because math came easy to me and, and the, the sciences had a, had a lot more reading and comprehension to do. So I think that was probably my inner self looking for an easier way out. But then that lasted a few years, and then I came back towards the biological sciences, and and here we are. So you you had your primary school years, and uh, you know they're quite formative. Yes. But uh, I find it's the high school years where you start to develop your sense of identity. Yes. So when you were through in the high school years, had that fully evolved, and you were very much um, clear on where you wanted to go in life with your profession. Did that come easy to you? Because a lot of teenagers do struggle with that. I I guess I saw myself having three or four options. The one that certainly didn't pan out was to be a professional basketball player, (laughs) which which I really seriously considered doing, but I wasn't skilled enough. Height is not an excuse, but uh, skill level certainly was not there. Um, and then I had briefly considered going into the legal profession like my father. I'd actually registered in law school, but then it didn't feel right. Um, I worked at a food and beverages 
company basically packing boxes in a dark basement from 6am sometimes till midnight in colombo in colombo as a teenager um late teens and and i found a lot of solace in that it was hard work but it was almost it was almost like solitary time where i had to do these tasks which were very repetitive but it was my time i could have i could have these amazing conversations with myself while while doing that and and um that gave me um a very very useful dimension in 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 working hard and being accountable and and so i learned a lot of things that i didn't learn in school with my with my first job and and after a while i realized that i probably wouldn't want to do that for the rest of my life and so the next change that came was again going back to medicine which i always had wanted to do and did that motivate you through the later years of high school to try and access university academically the issue was with basketball again in sri lanka we have the a level exams just like the mm. most european commonwealth systems which one can take uh, sit the a levels every year if you want to but the national schools games happened every other year and when the two coincided with the national schools games and my a levels uh, the choice was obvious i was going to focus on basketball and so i took my a levels with just two months of effort which was uh, hardly sufficient but when i got the results they were good enough that everybody my teachers included thought that oh this may be good enough for you to get into medical school so i was amazingly happy and but in in sri lanka the the examination papers are marked and graded manually because you have essay type responses so mm-hmm. this process takes about 8 months wow and when the when the grades and the cutoff marks were were revealed in the newspaper 8 9 months later i had just missed the acceptance cutoff for medical school because everybody in my year had done tremendously well so then it didn't leave time to to take the a level exam again and i didn't have the motivation and i thought that time had passed and what a mistake to make i should have while waiting for the cut off to to be released i should have prepared and kept studying to take the a level exam the following year like i had originally planned to and so it was a very very um stark lesson in life because i had put all my proverbial eggs into that basket so i learned early not to do that <laughs> and and then i applied to medical schools worldwide and i was going to say so then what happened you, you missed the cut off so did you just give up or what did you what, what what did you do what was the solution so then came the the food and beverages job and but i had applied to to medical schools across the world i got accepted to most of them except that the tuitions were so high that i couldn't afford 95% of the schools that i was accepted to um st george's university in grenada had incidentally had a very close relationship with with sri lankan students 
Uh, and so when I had applied, not only did they accept me, but they also provided uh, a loan and scholarship assistance. So along with my family, who really, really did all they could to get to secure loans and, and assistance financially, uh, and St. George's offering what they did, uh, that's how I was able to pursue a career in medicine. So, like, in the school system in Sri Lanka, I mean, is it, um, do, do they have a private school system for young people? Were you, were you part of that or were you in the public system? There is a public and a private system. They're parallel. And I was in a private school. It's called St. Thomas's College. And But when it comes to the big landmark exams, like the, the 10th grade, the ordinary level exam and the 12th grade advanced level exams, we all take the same exams okay. and once you go to university and the good the interesting thing in Sri Lanka is that education is provided free of charge so if you choose to go to a public school and there are excellent public schools in Sri Lanka you could go all the way through from kindergarten to high school and then finish university and the entire process would be funded by the state highly competitive was there limited I mean universities in Australia to access them from high school there's limited positions and it becomes those final exams you speak of become highly competitive although the system has evolved to a point where there's various forms of accessing it so like you said you, you were worried about the grades originally but you still just applied with the grades you received and yes various universities had different admissions processes and standards okay so absolutely and, and, and that brings an interesting uh, point Shannon I now interview prospective students for St. George's University uh, wherever in the world I am they and it is an amazing process because the interview um, the guidelines that we receive from St. George's University on how to go about assessing the candidate that's sitting across from you is one of the most complete and holistic ones I've seen. There is a some emphasis on academic performance because that has to correlate with how not necessarily your knowledge but your work habits in a standardized setting which rightly or wrongly is how medical school still functions but that's just one component and there is um, a lot of emphasis placed on other things like how do you feel the leadership potential for this person is do you think the uh, the, per the applicant will have the emotional capacity not only to be a doctor but to adjust to a, a different setting they are supposed to write a one-page essay in real time that we forward to the school. And we are encouraged to ask um, slightly ethically provocative questions to see how someone would respond, not necessarily a right or wrong, but to assess someone's thought process and what kind of things other than academics has this person done with his or her life and there's a tremendous emphasis on that and so what St. George's is looking for is a well-rounded person um, a whole person 
that they can then take and train into a physician. And uh, so that's probably how I got in as well, because my grades were not, quote-unquote, good enough for a university in Sri Lanka, but it was more than good enough for St. George's because they had seen and appreciated, I hope, everything else that I had done aside from studies. Did they put you through an interview process? Yes, they did. As an interviewer, what candidates stand out for you the most? I know you described what the criteria is, but when you're actually in the situation, which ones stand out the most? Are they generally like straight from high school or straight from a, a graduate degree? Or do you tend to find it's people who are a bit older now who've actually had some life experience? That's a very interesting point. Most of the candidates that I interview for medical school would be out of high school or perhaps one year of of university. And what stands out are actually the personalities. and The personalities and how how well-rounded they seem. It, it's very difficult to to grade that, but it's it's a sense that you get after dealing with people, with hundreds and thousands mm, of people. Gotcha. And when you ask a question in a certain way, you see the response or you've, you observe what they have done with their lives. They've done this amazing project. Um, there was one student who almost single-handedly built build a library um, in a school in a remote part of Asia I forget the person and the country but it was so easy for this candidate I said how did you do this and he said well I knew a lot of people I got a lot of books together and uh, I managed to do this and, and it wasn't a part of a school project it wasn't a part of anything that was required of him but this is something that he just did now that person I, I don't know where this candidate is and I I'm pretty sure he was accepted to St. George's, but I'm sure someone like that who did that when they were 18, 19 years old, uh, there's something special about someone like that. Yeah, like, do you feel that communication is really important in a candidate? I mean, you often hear about uh, people having bad experiences with their GP or their doctor, and it's generally not because the GP is inadequate in their knowledge and skills, but they were unable to communicate effectively. I mean, is that something that you're really looking for as well? That is extremely important. So I would even modify that statement to say that a GP who cannot communicate effectively is not adequate, regardless of their academic skills. Because the ultimate goal is to heal and to promote health in the person who's sitting across from you in the office. It's not knowing all of the pathways in the brain. It's not knowing all of the contraction cycles in your heart. Um, That's important, but we should focus on the end result, is delivering health, is there's so much behavior, so much psychology that goes into this you could tell somebody stop doing this or start doing that but if that provider does not understand for example the psychology behind human behavior those recommendations are not going to work and you can't just at the end of the day say well I told him I told her now it's up to them that is just uh, 
that is not being effective. So you, it must be quite satisfying being in a position where you actually have some input in selecting future physicians. How did you come to gain a position like that? Like, How were you approached or how did you achieve that position where you're now someone that assesses candidates? Like, what, How did that occur? That happened in, in Singapore as well when I was uh, working in teaching hospitals there. And that was because I took a, a lead role in teaching and training so if you'd ask me professionally who I am I would professionally I would say I'm half doctor half teacher uh, where I was um, one of the, the lead people who would actually take on a newly graduated doctor and provide them training usually in infectious diseases which is my, my, my bread and butter so when so people people who were really involved in teaching and training were those who were generally invited to sit in on on uh, interview panels just because the teaching training and education kind of was linked to the process of interviewing new candidates St. George's I think was different I I, my parasitology professor uh, Callum McPherson uh, who I have a very close relationship with and um, an amazing individual so he's part of the global recruiting team for the university and when I moved to a new country actually I haven't done it yet I have to tell Callum that I'm in Bali um, so when I informed the school that oh I'm here then they would reach out and say well there's a candidate oh, in that country would you mind doing the interview so that's how it's kind of worked uh, I've kept my school uh, updated about where I am and if there are candidates from that region, uh, then the school would ask if I could. Can I, I ask could you a question in terms of your approach to medicine? Yes. We talked earlier about you know taking a preventative approach as opposed to a system that is focused on curative. Yes. Would you consider yourself somewhat of an activist as a medical professional in regards to trying to change that approach? See, I have to walk the walk first. Uh, and if the listeners could see, I have a tiny bit of a belly that's a bit too big. Uh, <laughs> I didn't notice. <laughs> so, I think I'm an advocate. So I'm probably not at the level of being an activist until I get my side of the story aligned. Have you had opposition into into your... As a, have you had opposition to your ethics and and, and personal approaches uh, yes. in the past? Can you give me an example of, you know, working in that system, applying a preventative approach with your patients? Have you been? Has anyone has anyone challenged you on that? Well, the system has challenged me um, directly and indirectly, I suppose. There's a certain time limit that's allocated to a doctor's visit and this was certainly a factor in in everywhere except New Zealand I suppose because New Zealand was, was was very proactive in that sense where you were given an X number of minutes to sort out um, the condition or the complaint that came in with with the patient 
So that by itself is constantly a reactive process. You're reacting to something that's already happened. You're reacting to a symptom. You're reacting to... to But don't have the time to dig deeper. And if we were to focus on prevention, the only feasible approach would be to schedule another clinic visit on another day and have the person come back to discuss preventative issues because of the time constraints and the payment structures and, and everything else. So who's, who is going to take another half day off of their, their busy schedule and make another... So we've just created a barrier to, to learning about, about being healthy in the first place. We've created that barrier by asking someone, look, I'll, I'll take care of this issue now. Why don't you come back in two weeks or whenever my next available appointment is so we can pick up where we left off here and talk about prevention. So that's an extreme... An, in, an increased burden on the healthcare system. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm not saying that I have all the right answers, but what I do know is this system of reactive medicine has not worked. With our academy, what we plan to do is to encourage people to be proactive I want to be able to generate interest in health in people yesterday I was at the grocery store and I wanted to get something healthy to cook for dinner so I managed to get some spinach my kids love yellow lentils so I picked that up and there was a gentleman in front of me who had a processed beverage in one hand and two donuts and he he sat down to, to eat those. Now, that was me 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I would have thought nothing of getting a processed beverage and a donut and just sitting there and eating it. But when I saw that, when I saw that image, I, I recoiled because I could see in my mind's eye what those processed molecules would do to his cells. And... And this is another example, getting back to what you alluded to before. Does that person have a disease? Probably not. But what kind of state would those cells be overloaded with the sugars and the toxins and the preservatives and, and whatever E770 is, if you look at the label of ingredients. And that's just only what's, what's permitted to oh. the bare minimum that's, yeah. that they're supposed to declare. <laughs> Uh, See a bunch of numbers. Yes, mm. and and we are fine eating E seven seven zero. Do you find it interesting how low on the priority list for many people the health is? Yes. S listening to what you were saying, I don't know if it's apathy or ignorance, and it very much surprises me. And it's, I often see it's not often until someone has something bad happen that it makes them. Uh, makes them change their, their health behaviours myself included I mean I had a chronic ankle injury that just would not heal and after six years of trying to repair it I actually started looking at alternative therapies and I came to discover through a nutritionist that my my cells and my joints were highly inflamed Yes. and it wasn't until I dramatically changed my diet that all of a sudden I started to get results in what I thought was a ligament and bone condition yes. 
I never really linked it to my diet. Um, and this is someone who's a health teacher. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, like listening to what you're saying there, it, it just surprises me because in my opinion, and I, I think you'll share this, that if you don't have a strong foundation of health, you literally have nothing else. You can't, you can't be a good husband. You can't be a good father. You can't be a good professional or whatever job you do. So does that often frustrate you? It does. And I think part of the things that people that I work with find me relatable is that I've done all those mistakes. And I'm still probably doing some of those mistakes. Same. <laughs> and so I'm able to to come at a problem from a very humble, very practical perspective rather than a Hollywood product that would stand on a, on a podium and say, do this, do that, and do the next thing. So I enjoy that close connection I have with, with anyone that I work with. And if my friends from 20 years ago would hear this podcast and say, what Changa's talking about how to eat? healthy yes. <laughs> they would have a, a very amusing moment there because I was known for eating whatever that was in front of my face but so that was a stage in my life where I was not as health aware as I am now but I'm also sensitive to the very real fact that people respond to the most urgent priorities so if it's a family where the income is not sufficient for for security, for safety, for any kind of food, then how are you going to fit the... And I'll get to this in, a, in another way in a minute, but in most societies, food that's actually healthy costs more, is more expensive than, than for example, fast food, than, for example, those two donuts. So, whereas... In a not-too-distant past, that was not the case. Food that was grown in your garden was not only free, but also extremely nutritious. Um, growing up, I had a little garden patch, and I used to grow pumpkins and spinach because it's, it's foolproof. Right? You really can't mess up growing pumpkins and spinach. So, And I was extremely proud when the spinach from my little garden patch as a seven-year-old was, was what was for, for lunch or dinner. So we've strayed so far away from, from things that what's cheaper financially is actually what's bad for you. So that's created a huge, huge uh, conflict. I know a lot of people who would want to buy a good quality spinach or, or greens but may not have the budget to do so. But I guess paradoxically it's actually costing more in the long term it because is. It is. there's a higher likelihood that you'll suffer from ill health which will then cost you financially and physically, socially, emotionally, um, you know, whether it's time off work broken relationships because of your injury, right. uh, loss of jobs. So there is a there is a paradox there. Exactly. Mm. And this is the kind of awareness that I envision creating in the communities where, and this is probably a journey that I had to walk myself, where is stop looking at the short term. And I'm not here telling you to 
increase your food budget by 100%? No, but there may be small changes that you could do that will have tremendous health benefits. And then one thing that I like about intermittent fasting is actually free and it's actually cheaper. You have one meal less a day. <laughs> Just to clarify, yes. your view on intermittent fasting is that it's a regenerative regenerative process. Yes. I'm actually fasting right now. So Me too. The process <laughs> I do is I basically, the way I describe it to people is I skip breakfast. Yes. I don't eat until midday. Yes. And then from midday to 4 p.m., I will basically feast yes. on as many healthy foods as possible, primarily yes. vegetables, salads, yes. some fruits, yes. um, nuts, yes. seeds, yes. good oils, yes. avocados, coconut oil. Yes. And then I stop at 4 p.m. and then I won't eat again till 12 p.m. the next day. Yes. Or 12, yeah, lunchtime the next day. Yes. And I mean, my health has never been better. I, I don't get sick often. There's yes. been a lot of sickness through my family. My daughter's picking up things from from her you know other classmates yes as happens you know in the early years of childhood so i'm actually astounded at my resilience it did take some discipline early on to deal with the hunger pains but i do it three times a week yes but now i actually really enjoy that state and um, i've been reading a little bit about ketosis yes do you have any knowledge on ketosis i do and it's a process that basically ketones are an alternate form of energy for the body and for the brain um, when you take sugar or carbohydrates away as a form of fuel or energy the process that kicks in produces molecules called ketones that can basically fuel your body especially your brain so that's the, the 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 principle is to create a state of ketosis. I'm. It's a very controversial issue. It's it's not straightforward. You will you will hear people say that ketosis is, you know, is the absolute must, and 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 there's no other way to do it except to go through ketosis. And you would hear people saying that no, you need carbohydrates, forget ketosis. Uh, you need these food groups. So, as with most things, I believe that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, and the other thing that I want to be cognizant of is that what works for one person may not necessarily work for another. And we must always, always be aware of why we are trying to implement the changes that we are doing and I find it useful to keep an eye on the prize the eye on the prize is promoting health so do I necessarily care that we get to good health through ketosis or through another means or by really immersing yourself in the community uh, by by uh, doing an activity that that really helps you spiritually see a global health problem I've learned about is type 2 diabetes yes which is heavily linked to lifestyle behaviours yes diet yes and to go another step further high carbohydrate diets so which is another way of saying high sugar diets yes because carbohydrates are converted to glucose yes. correct yes there is a lot of controversy and talk about ketosis do you think it's the way forward in um, in 
addressing that that problem. I mean, I know in Australia that type two diabetes rates are virtually quadrupling every year. Yes. Yes. Um, we have a really big obesity and overweight um, epidemic occurring, as are many developed countries or overdeveloped countries, as I actually like to refer yes. refer to them. How do you feel about that? And yeah, I'm just curious. I have a, I have a rule of thumb. I always tell people that I work with, if you showed this food item to your great-grandmother or your great-grandfather, would they recognize it as food? <laughs> and I think that's just a very, very simple rule of thumb. So what I'm getting at is whole foods and wholesome foods. And, and if you take that one little step to eliminating processed food and eating wholesome foods, I would be the happiest provider in the universe. When did it change? When did, when did that happen in, our, in the history of our world? I have some ideas. and I, as, a, as a high school health teacher in Australia, we have a senior course that's uh, primarily theory-based, and we analyse epidemiology of our country, so health statistics. And... From my and we, we, we address it relatively in depth, but when I look at a chart of the last century, there seems like there's a very large spike in the data around the 1950s, 60s, and that spike is closely linked to diabetes, cancer, yes. obesity, yes. and then as we go on, there's a new there's a new line that appears, and it's mental health, and then that is even more alarming. It's quadrupling, so. How do, where do you think we lost our way from that philosophy of growing our own food and eating it, being connected to our food, to where we are in many developing countries or developed countries? I should say. I think uh, that's an excellent, excellent observation, and I'm I'm going to have a disclaimer here that I'm not an anthropologist, but I do have my I do have my. I'd like to hear your. Yes, my beliefs. Yes, I do have those. (laughs) So, when the Industrial Revolution happened, uh, that could be identified as one of those big steps where we went into mass production, automation, all of those things that took away from the craftsman or the farmer as we knew before that point. Um, a farmer would grow crops, probably alternate crops, based on, on seasons and years, to and pay a lot of attention to the health of the soil, would do everything they could to keep the soil healthy, and farm in a very sustainable, um, sustainable manner. When you replace that with industrial farming, we get to a completely different landscape and even craftsmanship and I think we had a, an informal conversation about this uh, the last time we met where if you were to go to a sales outlet and buy a clock that clock is, is mass produced through an assembly line perhaps even a robotic assembly line these days where at a given station there's an individual component that's added to the clock and 
that person would only do that singular task over and over and over again. And then the clock would go to the next station and someone else would add a specific task over and over and over again. So once this clock is manufactured, it's lost all of its individuality. And if the clock breaks, heaven forbid, there's no craftsman who can identify where exactly the problem is. And in reality, it would be more expensive to have a craftsman look at fixing this broken clock. So you have to throw it away and you get a new clock. So psychologically now we've introduced the culture of throwaway. It's okay to throw away and buy a new one. Uh, it's okay to discard and replace. So this has become ingrained in, in our behaviors. So when you apply that to to farming and agriculture and food, it's very easy to see the parallels where you went from wholesome farming to industrial farming. And with industrial farming comes the need for longer shelf lives, enter the preservatives and the chemicals and the change in form and shape and consistency. Um, and to, to make people uh, buy into this, then you add addictive substances like sugar, salt, uh, you tap into people's innate cravings so that even when my kids see a certain product, they say, oh, I want that, I want... And I have to have this conversation about putting in your body what's healthy for it. So, Changa, can you tell me about your work with the World Health Organization? That's really impressive. It's um, It sounds a lot better than it actually was, but I just conducted some training courses on behalf of of World Health, my clinical area of interest is dengue fever. So I was involved in in organizing um, certain teaching conferences where we trained doctors from uh, the Asia Pacific all the way to the to the Middle East on on managing dengue fever. And again, I think that's a that's a good example of of how it could impact a health system. Because there is a misconception and, 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 and wrongful practice that we see every day where anybody with dengue fever is automatically admitted to the hospital and given intravenous fluids and, and if their platelet count starts to drop a little bit and we get transfused with platelets. So when we look at dengue fever holistically as a whole, we know that only a minority of people would need observation in the hospital and even from within that minority it's a yet another minority that would benefit from intravenous fluids and it's at a very specific time and not everybody whose platelet counts drop would need a platelet transfusion so so it was extremely rewarding for me to to contribute to the field of medicine in terms of how we should better manage dengue fever, which is a very, very common uh, mosquito-borne infection that we see in the tropics. So you you published a paper on dengue fever. Can you maybe give us a bit of a understanding of what you what you actually wrote about and what your uh, objectives were? Yes, I'm happy to. One of the laboratory abnormalities that we see in dengue fever has to do with platelets. Now, let me take a step back. In our blood, we have different kinds of cells. We have white blood cells that 
primarily have an immune function. We have red blood cells that carry oxygen. And the third component are these tiny elements called platelets. Now, if you cut yourself with a, with a sharp object, initially the blood would flow out, but then at a certain point, the bleeding would stop. And that's because there's a repair mechanism that clots the blood, and platelets are an integral part of this blood clotting process. And there are some uh, conditions where you inherit a gene for poorly functioning platelets, and that will cause bleeding disorders. If someone has cancer and gets chemotherapy, which is toxic to the bone marrow, and the platelet counts drop, they're at an increased risk for bleeding events. Now in dengue fever, we also see a drop in platelet counts. But there are some things that are unique in dengue compared to, let's say, someone who's on chemotherapy and has low platelet counts. A few things. So in dengue, the platelet counts drop, sometimes very quickly, from a normal count of perhaps 200,000 to double digits or even single digits. But at the same time, predictably, those counts improve again very, very dramatically. So the duration of low platelets is a matter of few days. And in those few days, how much of a bleeding risk is there? The other thing about dengue is that those few platelets that are left over actually work perfectly well. So their function is not impaired. Based on these fundamental principles and a tremendous amount of observational data, we were able to say that if you have a patient with dengue fever and their platelet counts drop, if they don't have a bleeding problem yet, please don't transfuse platelets because it's not necessary. Uh, and if you do transfuse platelets, if you recheck the blood at a later time, there's probably no difference. And platelets being a very, very valuable commodity, it's a blood product that people have to donate. Um, it also had an important impact in resource management and cost savings. So just to give practitioners the confidence that in uncomplicated dengue fever, if the platelet counts go below 50,000 or 20,000 or whatever it is, that you can watch and wait expectantly without reaching for the platelet transfusion. So that was a big contribution that we were able to make. Is it true that if you reduce cellular inflammation, uh, you're actually increasing cellular resistance to infection? That's a very, very, very good question. Inflammation has become one of the biggest buzzwords in, in today's health discussions. I'm going to actually ask you if you could define inflammation and systemic inflammation. So, but anyway. So, no, inflammation, I guess the best layman's term I could use for it is an irritation. So if something's irritated, it's upset, it's angry, it's... Uh, I can paint a visual image of inflammation if you have a a wound on your skin that gets inflamed, there are some cardinal signs that we see. It's red, it's hot, it's swollen, it's painful. And if it happens in a joint that's inflamed, you can't move it, so there's loss of function. So outwardly, we see inflammation as something that's red, hot, swollen, tender, and you lose its function. 
So internally, if you can, with your mind's eye, look at inflammation at a cellular level where it might not be red and hot because you can't really appreciate that, but things that are associated with those terms where it's angry, irritated, not able to do its job. Some of the Eastern philosophies would call this heaty, or it's heat, uh, which corresponds to the outward heat that we see in an infected wound. So that's how I would define inflammation to the layperson or even the healthcare provider is in those terms of being irritated, heaty, angry, um, upset. Interesting, because um, like I said, in my journey, I've really uh, placed a bigger emphasis on diet. Yes. And um, I've learned about those links to inflammation, yes. which I never knew I had. And um, I've been active my whole life. But there was a time in my life where I was exercising seven days a week, but I was still, what I, well, I was still overweight. Um, and I look at photos of myself ten years ago, and I, I now look at myself, and I'm swollen in the face and the neck, and I look red. Um, and I actually can, compared to how I look and feel now, uh, despite the fact I have a large beard, uh, I actually was like, well, maybe I wasn't overweight. I was just inflamed, you know. Um, on all levels and do you feel that if someone does you know take those steps like do you think diet is the foundation of um, prevention in general it is is that the foundation that's is the foundation that that's number one and what we What's do with ourselves diet? diet how can how can a, an average person who wants to improve their health where can they where should they start and what steps I think this is exactly what we need, Shannon. These are the messages that we need for for the person who's there wanting to make a difference, who has a million other things going on in their lives. I would focus on a few key concepts. Number one would be good quality sleep. So if you're sleep deprived, your body does not have the time it takes to regenerate and to calm that inflammatory process that's accumulated throughout the day's activity. There's no magic number of hours that one should sleep, uh, and it may vary from person to person. It certainly varies between age groups. But the best measure, again, I'm focused on end results, the best measure of good quality sleep is how you feel when you wake up. If you feel refreshed, regenerated, you don't snooze 15 times on your alarm clock, or you may not even need an alarm clock and you wake up at 5.30 a.m. or whatever it is. That, to me, tells more than any other singular thing that the person has had good quality sleep. So that's tremendously important. So sleep? Number one, yes. After sleep, this may not be in any particular order. Some schools of thought would put diet as the number two. Some may put your emotional state as number two and I'm going to speak a little because you'll hear a lot about diet we alluded to wholesome foods we alluded to avoiding processed foods um, and this to anybody is a, is a little bit more accessible to learn more about healthy aspects of diet so I'm going to spend a little time on emotional states and a lot of Experts in holistic health have said this before, so this is certainly not an original idea. But if we strip down our bodies down to the cellular level 
and even beyond to the molecular level we are made up of atoms and it's 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 an accepted truth that matter is made up of atoms and what's an atom it's ha- it has a proton and a neutron in the middle in the nucleus and it has a cloud of electrons swirling around this this nucleus so we are made up of gazillions of these electrically charged tiny things and what does an atom have it has energy it has electrical energy and imagine if you had a giant keyboard where you could alter how these atoms worked or if you could alter the energy process of these individual atoms and electron clouds then i propose to you that what happen what happens at an atomic level in your body is the very beginning of illness or health so once emotional state is strongly related to um things that may not make intuitive sense to the listener i may call it energy i may call it a field i may call it a state of being so if you disregard everything i've said about atoms and electrons and energy it just feels better inherently feels better to be calm to be in control of one's emotions to be grateful to have a sense of belonging to a community all of these things are indisputably positive feelings and to branch off from that there's numerous ways people can do that through like for example I mean yoga is a good example of that fundraising initiatives for your community yes exercising regularly being part of a, a running club yes uh, so to be a little bit more specific you know, meditation practices things like that yeah absolutely and each of those some you may prefer to do it alone some may you prefer to do it with a group of like-minded people so the the message here is emotional well-being and a sense of community it could be the boy scouts it could be anything that connects you with your immediate community in a positive way so i would propose that that addresses inflammation interesting okay along with diet mm. along with lifestyles like walking getting your lymphatics to move uh, so that the lymphatic system can do its job and then sometimes the most challenging step is to do all of that but yet avoid the toxins that invariably find its way into our body in asia it's very common to have polluted air or haze from time to time from from the burnings it's very little we can do about that depending on where we live um we have to breathe and sometimes these particles get into our system and and oftentimes find no way out so they're essentially residues that stick within our systems that can act as foci of inflammation mm. so having done all of that then we must take that extra near impossible step of keeping our bodies free of pollutants which is challenging in various environments but also um you know people are heavily influenced by their socioeconomic status yes um and that is a huge factor yes so going back another step to you were saying that you know you are really driven 
by um, empowering individuals to yes. take ownership of their health yes. and those triage responses. Um, you have a program that you're, you're beginning to establish. Okay, so do you want to speak more about it in terms of what your hopes, what your dreams for that are and how you feel it can have a wide impact? Yes. I won't talk. I, I know a little about it, but maybe you could just run us through what you're trying to initiate at the moment. And that's an extension of, of my core belief as a, as a health provider. So the program that we are in the process of implementing has a few key features. One key feature is an information education awareness portal where someone could access unbiased health information about commonly uh, about conditions that commonly affect all of us because I mean I know I've become a Google doctor and there's a lot of people out there like oh, I've got a rash I'm just going to Google it so are you saying that this will be a more trusted you know um, online form of information that people can access I so mean are there other existing methods like that Is, there must be something already established well, there are but what we are keen on doing um, are geographically and destinationally specific content so in Bali as we know there are certain skin conditions that happen over and over again that we don't necessarily see in other settings and the health advice that we provide in the Bali context is intimately linked to the existing health system in the Bali context so if you have a, a fever or a rash yes you could google it you could get unfiltered and more importantly information without weightage okay, as to what it could be and I'll give you a classic example yesterday a parent frantically brought their toddler to me and I said oh you know I think my son has the measles and pointed at a, at a rash and said that well this looks like the measles rash because I googled it and I looked at the images and, and so what that parent had access to was information it was information on what a measles rash looks like uh, or what it should look like perhaps an image but what that parent was lacking is perspective where does the rash fit with the entire being of the child what's actually the sequence of clinical events or symptoms in the grand context what is the weightage that we put on the rash versus other symptoms and so within 15 seconds I was able to reassure the father said this is not measles because if it's measles we would see this 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 and this so I think just yesterday's example highlights and I'm, I'm all for people that I work with or patients to be interested and to be to arm themselves with with knowledge I know some of my colleagues cringe at the thought of someone a patient having googled something and 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 discussing it whereas me I love that because that Why? shows me because they're, they're trying they're trying exactly right they're trying and they're interested and there may be two groups of people one group may be truly open-minded and, and trying and the other group may be so convinced that they bring uh, close-mindedness mindedness to it and saying, I know this is what I have. Mm -hmm. And and I equally 
appreciate both groups. The open-minded group, it's it's obvious why that's appreciated because there's a uh, opportunity to work there. But people who come to me with a firm conviction, I probably enjoy the challenge even a little bit more. You enjoy the challenge? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Do you find that, that you get these, you know, Google experts and you actually enjoy that challenge? Because I'm, I'm sure some GPs would be put off side by that because their credentials are being questioned. But you're, you're saying that you actually enjoy that challenge. I do. And, and, and the key to it is to not take it personally. So I would, I would tell that GP who's offended... This is not about you. This is not about your credentials. I hope you are comfortable in, in your abilities to a point where you don't take this personally. You know, talking at, like in depth with you, it's just becoming more and more apparent to me that, you know, you know I mean, you're, a phys- you're a physician with a lot of academia behind you, but I also feel that you, you're, you're definitely a counsellor as well. Um, you know, so... To be in your position, you must feel so, like, conflicted at times, you know, not maybe not conflicted, but just challenged, you know, what hat am I going to put on in this situation? Am I taking a purely scientific approach, or am I actually addressing a psychological issue? I mean, and that's where I feel that being a doctor is such a, a craft to be honed for many years. I mean, you said earlier that for you it's progress, not perfection. Yes. Because perfection doesn't exist. No. And that's how you still feel? And that's what drives you? Absolutely. And if you took five minutes to chat with my wife, you would hear a completely different changa. (laughs) Because I think when I'm conscious about my professional aspects, I do all of the things that you just beautifully described. But then my next challenge is how do I bring this to my everyday, every moment life? Is that because there's more of an emotional aspect with your wife when you when you talk to her because you have more of a vested interest in her? You know, it, it may be something that she notices about how I interact with a certain situation with the children. Mm. Um, and one of the questions that she's always asked me is that, she says, I know how good you are at your workplace. How can we bring the same changa to every moment in the family and I've struggled with this too because um, in, in certain situations with the family issues or with the kids issues my response or responses may be very primitive compared to how I conduct myself professionally and biologically there's a, there's a little, little sense there where you're, you're switched on here and you're kind of switched off there But I propose to you that perhaps my primary responsibility should be my family, that that they should get the best of me first before I go saving the world. Wow. I really identify with that, actually. I tend to sometimes give my best to others and... It is easy. It is. It's easy to neglect your family because you know that they're always going to be there. Right, and and that's and, such um, a. And we get our priorities wrong sometimes. Right, and that's such an important thing that you just mentioned that we know they're going to be there. So another way of saying that is we take them for granted, because 
we know or we think that day in day out this is my family mm. whereas this other professional interaction is time limited circumstance limited and once that interaction is done both people walk their separate ways so you want to get your best condensed into that finite environment and that finite time space whereas with family that you are blessed to live with every day even though we are all going to die someday and we forget that a lot of times so in that sense our time is finite but from a day to day level you think that you you're not impressed by the finite nature of time with your loved ones and if if you had a crystal ball and you would tell me changa in two and a half years time you're going to die you're going to have this horrible accident and die and immediately that would i would start counting the hours that i have <laughs> left to spend with my family mm. and then i would guaranteed approach everything differently so these are the, the challenges that i take on and i i invite everyone to take on is challenge yourself to be better even the buddha challenged himself to be better even when he reached the highest states of enlightenment all the prophets we know challenge themselves to be better would you consider yourself a practicing buddhist uh yes um perfect no practicing yes that's why it's called practicing i guess <laughs> you practice 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 and and one of the the pillars of buddhism is compassion and i like to think that i have that um or at least i'm working on that to have compassion in all situations including compassion towards myself um but i'm far from a finished product and and i think that too i've learned in 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 later life because when i was undergoing medical training in the training programs some of the best programs in the world i was extremely successful so even from a very select peer group i was considered the the best of the best and with that came a lot of validations that were perhaps misplaced uh where i thought look if i do this then that's all it matters Did i can start ne- seeking validation for your ego i think that is something that i have become aware of more in the last few years believe it or not than at any point in my in my past and i had a conversation with one of my old friends yesterday and he's a surgeon in in the us doing very well and he brought this up in our conversation and he said you know changa you and i are very similar we want people to like us we there's a big part of us that wants to be seen as good likable people that that other people want to spend time with and and we were we were it was a very deep conversation we were having it was not about i know the tv shows or whatever and and so so these are the the moments that help us reflect and see well there's not a lot wrong with that there's something wrong with that so where do we where does all of that fit and how do we bring our best selves to ones that matter most which is our family mm. and so we have to f- fight against a lot of products of the system like time constraints energy constraints yeah. and this big big thing of taking something or someone for granted 
So that could be family, that could be health. So, so these are the areas that I use for my for substrate for personal growth is to focus on those and to try and be better than I was yesterday. I think we've just gone full circle. You've just gone back to gratitude after yes. the whole conversation. You yes. started with talking about gratitude. Yes. And you've now come back to that. And um, it's a resounding theme. Uh, I also, you also mentioned the word compassion. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I, I feel that many communities in developing countries, I keep referring to that because that's where I'm from, or yes. developed countries, sorry, not developing, yes. developed, are uh, lacking compassion for one another. Um, and that's a real personal comparison I've noticed between a Western developed country compared to a developing country. Strip away the material, they have that as a foundation. Yes. In our country, in my country, I'm just referring to Australia because it's all I know, you strip away the material, there, there is a distinct lack of community. Absolutely. Um, and people are feeling very isolated in that. Um, again, this is my opinion. But when I look at epidemiology and I look at the rate in mental health, uh, it feels like there's a very strong link to what you're saying. Now, it's, it's been epic. We've been on for an hour and 40 minutes. We've had our challenges, background noise. We've got marimba. We've got music. We've got a hacksaw going out there. Um, you've had medical phone calls you've had to answer. We've had a bathroom break. Um, I just want to finish up by approaching the disillusion that many people are starting to have towards modern medicine. I hear and see it all the time. Um, do you think it's ever going to change? That's a. Or is the problem too big? Because you spoke, you spoke to me the other day. You said um, you you spoke about doctors being questioned on, questioned on how many prescriptions they write. Okay. Do you feel the problem's too big? Is it something that can just not be? We can't win. Well, you're asking an eternal optimist, so probably to a fault. But I think. No problem is too big to fix if we want it fixed. Uh, Where if do we, we start? If we can we put starting, it, do we start with ourselves? And I think you would probably be more of an expert in this area as a teacher and as a health advocate, which I believe you are. Thank you. Um, and I'm still trying to learn to get to a place where someone like you already are as a, as a teacher um, it makes all the sense to start with, with ourselves and it's, it's the analogy of the oxygen mask that drops, you know, when the plane's cabin pressure is low, you have to put the mask on yourself first and, and, and mm. then see what you can do to those around us and so if we nourish and take care of ourselves first and foremost, then you've made one tiny change in the healthcare landscape of wherever you may be ha happen to li be living in. Mm. And then you extend that to your family, to your loved ones, to your friends, mm. to the community at large. So, live, Would you say live by example? Yes, yes. Um, and it depends who's watching. Maybe no one's watching and... 
then the impact is limited to the individual. So the individual would benefit tremendously from adhering to good practices. But if you are in a position as a physician or a teacher where you are in the public eye, um, living by example has a tremendous effect. Mm. And part of my own journey to get healthy, healthier, uh, even though I'm very fortunate not to have any chronic illnesses in a diagnostic sense, but I want to reach a much better place of health because if I'm a champion of health, people should be able to look at me and say, aha, this person looks healthy and I know that they feel healthy. Uh, without that platform, you know, how could I stand on a, on a podium and say, let's get our health in order? So it has to start with me. It's amazing and I think it's a great way to finish. Dr. Changar, thanks for chatting, me, chatting with me today and I'd, I'd love to speak to you again and maybe it's something we can do uh, a little bit more regularly and maybe we can discuss particular you know um, current topics that need to be addressed so thank you for your words of I really believe hope for, for health and your captivating way of relaying that information and I see it in the interpersonal relationships that you've developed in the community that we function in at the moment and um, it's just so comforting to me for me to know that someone like you is grooming physicians of the future so um, I think you're doing amazing work so please keep it up and um, thank you very much thank you Shannon thank you for giving this is the first uh, podcast that I've been ever involved in and, and thank you for giving me this opportunity and and I really appreciate um, everything that you are doing, uh, not only as a teacher but as a person and as someone who is who is going beyond the fringes just like I am um, to to learn and grow that process should never stop and I think you highlight that and and I hope that all of your students are inspired by that and I know you prefer Changa, but i 'm sorry <laughs> i 'm just always going to call you Dr Changa because I just Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, traders, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up, ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can, and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.